psychosocial and spiritual screening and um, assessment. We'll look at some of those. And also to think about, you all have all heard about burnout among staff. Now there's another phrase called compassion fatigue. Um, but I also like to look at resiliency. So we know the downside of that. What about the, uh, the upside and how do we take care of ourselves? Um, how do you take care of yourself and your colleagues? 
So first, we should really identify what loss, oh, and I would encourage you to just ask questions in the midst of things. Please don't feel that you need to wait until the end. And I'm so glad to see so many familiar faces in here, people that I work with uh, all the time. Uh, so loss, to lose something is to, to be deprived of it, to cease to have it, to, re to not be able to retain it anymore. So we can lose our keys, we can lose our life, we can lose uh, faith in something. Um, the loss is the actual process process of that losing. And also please forgive my voice, I woke up this morning with a bad throat. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, try, I'll push through it, but uh, I hope you can hear me. Grief is um, all of that multifaceted way that we respond to that loss. Um, and um, that loss, it matters to us because we've formed a bond with it. Um, if we change jobs, we might be very excited about the job that we're going to, but we still, it still means that we've lost the other. Um, if we have colleagues that move on, um, the same can occur. Patients that we've formed a particular bond with, we're happy they can go home, but it's still a loss for us to not be able to see them and enjoy them each day. And then bereavement is that period of time after the loss, and that's when you experience your grief and you experience mourning. Resilience is um, not avoiding stress, but it's how you cope with the stress. When, because as you remember from your old psychology courses, there, stress is both positive and negative, right? It's all stress, it all has these uh, visceral responses for us. But um, when you encounter stress, in what way do you encounter that? What do you do? What is involved in you being resilient in the midst of that? And so uh, we talk about self-confidence, about social confidence, um, and having uh, appropriate responsibility in that. Um, we'll talk a bit about that. So when we work with our families, our colleagues, our patients, our uh, administration, uh, any of those things, we have a variety of things that can fall into the column of loss. With many of our patients, their loss is one of mobility or function. Um, that's a, that's a no-brainer for us. We see that all the time in chronic illness, acute illness, or injury. Um, but also looking at our patients and um, thinking about them in terms of their independence. Um, I have a client that I was working with this morning that um, it's a real dignity issue for her that we, at, at 50 years old, we have uh, engaged her father in um, keeping a chart of her medications because, and in distributing them to her because um, she wasn't doing a good job with it and she finally was a big affront to her dignity at 50 years old to have a parent have to do this. I have to say in the two weeks we've been doing it, however, her health has improved greatly, has, has her functioning, her mobility, all kinds of things have improved. And we pay attention to talking about that. We don't just say this is how it is and we go on. But actually when I meet with her each week, because our medical people have to meet with her to talk about medication management, I meet with her separately just to talk about those issues of dignity and independence and purpose and all of these things that go along with that. Um, loss of community. I have had um, patients who have um, said to us, um, I don't see in the cancer center, for instance, they don't see their friends anymore. If they're coming here for radiation five days a week, they're coming here for chemotherapy maybe three times a week for several weeks at a time, um, really their community becomes us. The receptionists 
who are sitting there, which um, is often the face of our work, our, our receptionist who meet people when they enter the door. But um, when a doctor um, says to someone, there is no more chemotherapy that's going to be helpful to you right now, and I think it's time for hospice. When they leave here, they're not only coping with the fact that their end of their life is coming near, but they're also coping with the fact that these people that they have come to socialize with and enjoy, these people that they've talked to about their families to and all of that, that they leave us now. And when we think of the care that we do, it's very intimate care. It's physically intimate for you. It's not physically intimate for me. But it is emotionally intimate for all of us. And when I say you, I'm assuming there are social workers in the room that I see here, um, social work colleagues, but um, nurses, you know, you're, what you're doing is physically intimate as well. Um, that loss of companionship, um, if someone dies, we certainly um, know that there's somebody, I had a couple that I just uh, worked with for the last two years, and the gentleman died, and he was an artist, and she uh, was an artist as well, but she really did the wordsmithing on a lot of things, and they were married and worked together every day and lived together for the last 25 years, and he died. So every moment of her day had him in it, and he died. Um, privacy. You know, I always think the captain of industry who's sitting in a Johnny in their room in, in our acute beds. This is not how this person lives their life. And here they are, and now they've got a roommate whether they're an inpatient or whether they're an outpatient in the infusion suite, they've got someone in the chair next to them. We're coming in and we're talking to them about their finances. We're talking to them about their medication use. We're talking to them about their bowel movements. We're talking to them about their relationships. All of this with an open door, with possibly a roommate. And I know when I have on occasion seen people inpatient because I work outpatient, with people coming in and out all the time, you know, while we're, while we're having some meetings. And certainly a loss of control. Um, I learned very early in my career when I was a social worker, my first social work job after my master's degree up at Gifford Hospital in Randolph, Vermont. And I remember, and it's a small hospital, and I remember the nurses, some of the nurses becoming so frustrated with a particular gentleman um, because if he had his tray over his bed and um, they were assisting him, and then move the tray back and put everything back where they thought, and he would say, that glass was over there. And he would move it two inches to the left. And they would think, come on. But I thought he had COPD, advanced stages of COPD, and I thought, and I only thought this, it's not because I'm brilliant, I only thought it after I had um, bronchitis once. If you cannot do one of the probably two most basic things your body does, breathe, you'd want to be grasping for control somewhere. And so for some of our patients, that's where their control comes from. Some of these things that seem pretty ridiculous and unreasonable that they're asking of us. So think about that when we're working. What, what is the residual benefit that this person gets from wanting total control over everything? Certainly a loss of structure and routine where either we are, um, I was gonna say inflicting, imposing a new routine on them, a new structure for them and how they have to do things, the appointments, I'm getting lots and lots of uh, lots and lots of complaints from patients who cannot find a way to get routine appointments with us, and it's really affected their home routines. Um, how can they go out for a walk? How can they see their grandchildren who they do daycare for? How can they do these other things in the midst of serious illness? 
um, certainly a loss of energy. And we see their loss of physical energy and their endurance, but do we consider the loss of emotional energy? Um, and in palliative care, you know, we focus on the three aspects of, a, of the human experience, which is their physical, their emotional, and their spiritual. And I'll define spiritual in a little bit. Um, but we, we feel that we know that if we cannot manage their physical suffering, we're not going to get to their emotional and spiritual suffering. We must relieve their physical pain. And I believe there's a strong emotional and spiritual component to physical pain very often. But we must, we must hit that. So when we look at someone's energy, we may not be able to expect them to have a lot of tolerance for what's going on around them if they're so depleted of physical energy. Certainly people, the loss of a home. I met a, a, a person yesterday who used to work here at this hospital in an um, administrative clerical kind of position um, some time ago. And when he became ill, he had to leave his job. He could not get short-term disability benefits um, because he, um, he said that our, our benefits didn't uh, apply. He had several comorbidities with his illnesses. And they would look at each one individually and say, no, you should be able to work. So he had to completely leave his job applied for Social Security Disability, got that, and that's a hard one to get, got that, um, his wife left him. He went from one of the people you and I see every day, greeting our patients, getting them into their appointments, doing that sort of thing within our system, not necessarily in this building, to being homeless. He lived in his car, and he lived in his car until it got too cold, and then he lived at the homeless shelter. This is a man who, when he walked in our offices, both the nurse practitioner and I said, I recognize you. And then we told us what he used to do. And I said to him later, as we talked about coping with all of this, I said, if I remember right, you were always a very dapper dresser. And he said, yeah, they used to call me GQ. You know? um, and, I thought, and I said to him, what was that like to go from that to living in a homeless shelter? This is us. This is us. He was two paychecks away, as many people are, from that. So home is a very real loss for people right now. Certainly status. You know, um, what happens when one of our colleagues, um, especially if it's a physician, is one of our patients? That how do they even walk that line between being a, being a colleague and being the patient? Um, I know when I meet with um, clients who are social workers, I have the hardest time getting them to talk about coping harder than anybody else because I think they feel embarrassed that I'm a social worker and they're a social worker and they should somehow already know all this and be able to do this. Um, so we want to help people um, be able to understand that um, this illness is not something they chose, it's not their fault, it's, you know, um, but to recognize that they may be, as I said, a captain of industry and now they're sitting there in their Johnny. Um, they have a loss of possibilities, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm meeting with somebody who, um, her husband died, and three months later, the cancer that she had 13 years ago when they adopted their daughter came roaring back, three months after her husband's death. So they have an adopted daughter, and I, and I mentioned that she's adopted because for that child, that is yet in her lifetime another loss that she will probably cope with, as um, people often do who have been adopted. Um, 
but the possibility was that she didn't have her husband, that was taken away from her, then her own cancer um, revisited re, uh, her, so the possibility of living beyond five years is gone, the possibility of seeing her daughter graduate from high school is gone, uh, you know, the, these possibilities, we have to think about this when we want people to buck up and face it. Certainly any stability, one day somebody's able to cope with their lives and do things and the next day they're not. Those social interactions, as I said, those are, um, we often become their social um, interaction on some levels. Um, their dignity, we've mentioned, uh, employment, I've mentioned, financial standing, mentioned. Having a feel feeling, a sense of safety and security. When we talk later about coping, this is one of the things that um, has been identified when people have very traumatic losses, like when 9-11 occurred and people lost their lives, and they lost their building, or they lost a family member, suddenly their sense of safety and security in the world changed. And so if they couldn't cope, it's because all their expectations went right out the window. And a sense of wholeness. It's not just when you have your breast removed or your leg amputated, but a um, young woman that I met with earlier this morning whose father is managing, helping her manage her meds now, she said to me last week, I feel as though I have lost myself. This is somebody who we thought was going to die when she was in our ICU, and she left here and ended up in rehab, and I can't believe she's about to do some volunteering with kids again in a school system next week. Um, we didn't think she would live, um, but she said, I feel as though I've lost myself. Her sense of self had to do with being able to be physically active. She was a coach, and so that was it. <coughs> Expectations I just mentioned, certainly autonomy. Man, we are all up in their face and in their business. So um, their decision-making is no longer their own. Their family members get to try to have a say. Their physicians have a say. Others of us who are maybe offering some options have a sense. Their identity and role. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit later, too. A sense of competency. Think about that nurse, that doctor, that social worker. Well, I would say especially nurses and doctors, when they are the person who's ill, you know, you, many of you are specialists. You're not generalists anymore. You're specialists. And so if your specialty is um, orthopedic medicine, then why do we expect you to deal with an oncology diagnosis or with your child being ill or anything like that? It's a, it's a different animal. And so that we often try to help people or your colleague. I've had a patient who was your colleague and ended up hospitalized on your floor with former coworkers. Um, and where did that feel in terms of their sense of I have to I have to remember everything I knew as a bedside nurse? No, you don't right now. Your body is depleted. Your mind is taken up with other things, and um, it's just not where your head is right now. A sense of hope. Uh, this is where we we try to uh, reestablish and reframe where they get their hope from. And faith. Faith may be a faith perspective. God concept, something along that line, or faith may be just faith in their doctor. Uh, I do pancreatic clinic every Tuesday morning, and so many people will be so upset that their, their primary care for provider did not identify that they had pancreatic cancer two years ago. And so part of my job is, uh, I feel, to help them feel secure in the healthcare system is to say, this thing masks itself as back pain because you've shoveled the driveway. It masks itself as weight loss because you've been trying to be a good dieter and to try and, and, and reinforce what the physician is telling them about that.
Now, traumatic loss, such as I said with 9-11, that sort of thing, is when that stress is so severe that it exceeds the coping capability. Um, somebody can be a very um, good coper with the normal difficulties in life, but um, after, after the uh, World Trade Center and the Pentagon Trade Center buildings in the Pentagon were hit, the, uh, I have a friend who is a, a psychotherapist, a social worker psychotherapist who uh, deals in eating disorders and that sort of thing, and so she has a specialty in, um, in tra trauma. And she said to me that many people were re-experiencing childhood traumas after that. It's not that they've been bombed ever in their lives. It's not that they felt their life was a threat, but they may be uh, growing up after having been um, the victims of sexual abuse or something as a child. This trauma, what happened in our country, was so unusual for us. It hadn't happened since Pearl Harbor. So unusual for us that it exceeded our stress capability. Um, it, this traumatic loss may be because there's a lasting separation. And again, it changes the very basic expectations and assumptions of our lives, such as, I could go to work this morning. Um, it has, um, our, our systems, are, we always hear about fight or flight, but there's freeze. Um, to fight would be, um, you know, that an, an adverse thing happens and you push through. Let's use a surgeon as an example. A surgeon will push through an adverse occurrence while they're doing surgery, right, to try and fix it. You would not want your surgeon to freeze. You would not want your surgeon to say, I can't do this anymore. And you would not want them to put down their tools and leave the room. And so different, different, um, there are different responses for different situations, but we should have an awareness that all these things are very natural in our things. You know that people become hyper alert, their, their, their um, sensitivity is aroused, that you can have insomnia, that their pain, I think, is uh, aggravated by fear. We had a patient who came one day, a young woman, and she had way exceeded her pain medication. It was our, one of our nurse practitioners that I was working with that day, was, told me later she actually was surprised that she had not um, died, that she had used so much. Things were stressful that night in her home. She went into her room. If two oxycodones um, are good, four would be better, um, and took them. And, um, and so as the nurse practitioner and she talked about pain, um, they, they decided to up her pain medication because of the physical um, symptoms she was talking about. And, and we believe she was being totally honest about that. But the nurse practitioner left the room, and I said to the patient, because I just had this nagging thought, and I said, I, I just made this statement. I said, you know, we know that physical pain has three sources. It has a biological source, a physiological source. It has an emotional component, and it has a spiritual component. As we look at your physical pain, how much of it would you say is strictly physical, nothing else impacted, strictly biological? And she said, you know, something like 60%, which is different than she'd been reporting to our nurse practitioner. I said, how much would you say is emotional? You know, you know, what do you think? But you see the affect that I am taking on is one, it's conversational, there's an assumption that it's this, so I'm presenting a truth 
I'm not asking her if she thinks this, I'm just giving this as an assumption. And I'm saying it in a way where I'm not judging whether she's psychologically sound or not. I'm making it sound as though everybody answers this question in three components, those sorts of things. That's a way to do it. But we, we, we do want to know that when we're asking our patients pain scale stuff to take into, uh, into consideration in a very, very important way that it can have to do with fear or stress. And of course, you know, people can, can be tremulous um, and have a lot of tension from their fear. Their heart can, uh, they can have heart palpitations, sweating a lot, dry mouth. It can affect their bowel and bladder that they may have to do these things. So how do we assess all this? Well, our assessment involves um, it, looking at a person in the context of their environment, not just looking at them as, a, as, a, uh, as though we are all exactly the same and we are all always in this room together. But in fact, how does their, um, what are the different factors that involve uh, our assessment with them? Um, uh, we want to understand, uh, as I said, in their environment, how they react, how they make meaning of the experiences of their life. Um, we want to look at what someone's developmental age is. So is it, um, you know, remember Erickson's uh, charts about the eight stages of development, and that when a child is little, very, very young, up to a year old, they're looking at trust versus mistrust, and their maternal figure is the one who is the primary focus of that. This is where a child forms that first loving bond with someone. Um, this is also where they can develop a sense of mistrust. You remember the experiment with, you know, um, the, remember with the stuffed a uh, bear or stuffed monkey that had uh, pokey things sticking out of it, and if a child cried, did we give it something that was warm and cuddly, or did we give it this thing that had poke, you know, pokeability to it? When the child hugged it, the child learned to mistrust that comfort being given. Um, interesting, some of the old human experiments that were done. Huh? Um, you haven't talked about the electric shock. Um, but, um, and then in stage two, up to two years old, this is where they're starting to become autonomous. The child's starting to try to learn to walk. They think they can walk across them. They have doubt about it. They're a little shaky. They look at both parental figures at that time. Um, all of their energies are, are in their developmental skill. They want to learn control and that sort of thing at that age. Um, they, they start to recognize um, family as being there for them. Um, they, um, they become more assertive, they take some initiative in these things, they start to grow a little more, 6 to 12 years, they um, get congratulated about some things and think they're good about it, other things they, they start to notice they may not be as good as someone else around them. The, um, the judgment that they take as, um, as uh, valuable to themselves not only comes from their family anymore, but it comes from other children, from their school. Um, then there's adolescence, ah. um, and that is trying to figure out who they are versus someone else. And of course, the primary um, mirror for them at that age are their peers. Um, and so they always want to know that they're getting um, good acceptance from their peers. This sort of stuff is important to us, not in looking at everybody, but think about when you're working with a family that has one child that has had a chronic illness and look at that child's stage of development, no matter what their chronologic years, and then look at the other children in the family, and how has the impact of the sibling's illness, what has that done to impact their 
developmental stages of trust and reliance on parents and others. And you'll often see in a room, you've got the sick child who might be an adolescent or 20 years old, maybe in the bed, who maybe behaves as though they're an adolescent. You've got their adolescent siblings in the corner, you know, working on their computers or their phones who, who act as though they're sort of rude about it. They don't seem to care at all that their sibling is very ill, but when you think about what their life has been like with all the attention going to this child, you know, we want to think about um, how that's affected their developmental stage. That young adulthood is when they start to then form other very important intimate bonds and also maybe in their room a lot feeling very isolated. Um, you know, I think um, is this where they've gone out to, off to college for the first time and they're trying to really try to figure out who they are. Um, generativity is uh, where I take what I know and try to impart that to others to be helpful to others. So they're experiencing some of that. They're beginning to teach people as they approach middle adulthood. Uh, very often they're children. They're starting to have children. Um, but also there's a self-absorption. This might be a time when people are gaining in their careers and that sort of thing. And then later, later adulthood. How do I be true to myself versus feeling uh, untrue to myself and a sense of despair at some things? Uh, we think of humanity at large at this point, you know, maybe not just ourselves. So you're looking at that individual and what their developmental stage is. Then you look at them in the context of their family because again, to make a good assessment, we have to look at the individual in the context of their relationships and their environment. So we've got that family who's coming in and they've got young children and so that couple that had that autonomy is now getting used to the fact that someone needs them for everything. And so their energy goes there. There's a lack of privacy for the couple anymore for the individual because they're focusing on their children, developing those parental roles, and they're depleted of energy. Um, when they have adolescence, then they have to figure out how to be flexible with boundaries and that. This impacts our work because if we've got children um, whose parents, sometimes I know we've experienced this a lot, where the parent won't let us talk to the child who has the life-limiting illness, who has the chronic illness, they're, they stand as guard between you and them. You can't ever get the child alone in a room and the child is maybe 15 years old and you'd like to hear their opinion about their health care, but also you'd like to hear how they feel about dying, about um, their life expectancy, about their relationships, and that parent won't let you in. So this is looking at that family life cycle. Is that parent acting as though this is a toddler rather than as though this is a, a young adult here? And, and then trying to figure out as our interdisciplinary teams figure out how to care for them, how to, how to assist them with coping in a better way. Um, balancing everything and balancing freedom with responsibility also comes with people's health care issues, doesn't it? Um, establishing all of that. Um, then um, our young adults grow up and they start to get attached to other families. This is where you spend Thanksgiving with one family and um, the, winter, the other winter holidays maybe with another. Um, that their relationships with their peers tend to become more um, a part of their focus than their relationships with extended family. They may not call or visit at home. Um, they establish themselves as a work self, which may be very different than, um, than um, the other person. Uh, by the way, when substance abuse is an issue for somebody, I've heard people who are in recovery say, if, let's say if they're in an Alcoholics Anonymous program, they say, I grew up 
in AA. That doesn't mean that their parents were in AA and they came to meetings. It means that at 45 or 60 years old or 28 years old, they came to AA and began to do these developmental life stages. Um, that they hadn't done uh, well before. So then you, we reach a point which, as I look around the room, is probably many of, many of us where we're launching our children, uh, or have launched them a decade ago, um, launching our children and now trying to figure out who are we now that we are emancipated from that? Um, how, do we, how do we define ourselves at these days? Our families are joined via these marriage, and then we incorporate ourselves sort of as a community. People commit themselves to a new system, not just their family. Um, and uh, later in life, a, a acceptance of those shifting roles where your parents, you may in some ways now act parental toward. Come on, Dad, you know you're not supposed to drive. Come on, Mom, you've got to take your insulin. You know, that sort of thing, which is a very difficult stage um, in a family's life. And then, of course, when we lose someone, uh, if we've lost them at an older age, to cope with how to, how to do that bereavement. Um, this is important, again, because this is who comes to you. It is not just an individual who's the same as everyone else, but this is what they bring in the door as they approach the bed where you meet them or the office where you meet them. And if you want to feel successful about your work, be successful about your work, and not pull all your hair out, you do well to think about these things as you're trying to figure out what your interventions are. So um, Ira Bayak, who um, was my director, um, who I miss greatly, but is out in California now. I know a lot of you worked with Ira when he was here. Um, Ira, uh, as well as other people, have worked on these landmarks, these developmental landmarks in life, so that uh, as people approach the end of their life, they have a sense of completion with worldly affairs. This is where I give a paper out to people. If any of you can come up with a better name, please tell me. It's called Getting Your Affairs in Order, but you know, um, I wish there was kind of a better name, but um, this is where people are uh, making sure that they've done their will, that they've um, put somebody else's name on their bank account, and I would advise all of you, we could all be in a car accident tomorrow, unexpectedly, um, have a place where your computer codes are so that somebody can get in to pay the bills and that sort of thing. Um, they move on, um, if they've done that sort of thing, they move on to relationships in the community. Uh, when I worked for Home Health, for the hospice program, I remember entering a gentleman, uh, a couple's house one time, and. I was speaking with um, uh, the gentleman's wife in the kitchen, and he was in the other room on the phone um, getting people on these various boards of directors that he was on in the community, getting um, people to take up some of the tasks that he had. And so this was how he wanted to do completion, was to make sure this important work was carried on. To um, forgive oneself is another very, very big milestone. Um, that uh, people have to go through. You know, so many people have said to me, if I'd known that I was going to die when I was 65, I would have spent a lot more time going to my grandson's ball game than I did getting overtime at work. Because in the end, we probably could have done without the money, but I would have wanted my grandson to have those memories. Um, experiencing that love of others is an acceptance of one's own worthiness. I am worthy of your love, therefore I accept your love. Um, and I know I'm talking through a room full of nurses, so I'm talking to people who give, 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 give care and are not so great at accepting it. So um, to acknowledge what impact you have on the world, what ripples you send out, and to feel a sense of, I deserve to sit down and have lunch today. 
right? I deserve to be able to talk about how hard this is with this patient. I am competent, I am worthy, and I get to have what I would give to anyone else. Um, also accepting the finality of one's existence as an individual in, on this level, whatever one's spiritual beliefs are, if they have beliefs about what may or may not happen in afterlife. Um, the sense of the self beyond, um, beyond one's personal um, is developing self-awareness, to just be present, to be present, to have a sense of what one's purpose in life was, um, and to give in to what comes next. I, you may have experienced as well that your patients are far more ready to go when it's time to go than their families are to let them go. And that's a sincere thing, and it doesn't always mean that they've suffered and want to stop suffering. If we've done a good job, they're not suffering. But they just come to this place of peace. Uh, we hope that they come to that. So the other thing we want to look at with people is their culture. So it's this individual in their own stage of development, in their family life cycle, now what about outside, outside the house? What is their culture? And Dr. Kleinman um, came up with, with um, eight questions that we can ask people. So we want to find out how our thoughts, our communications, our, our actions, our belief system, our values, and the institutions or resources that we use, how do those come from? I where do those come from? I, these days, our cultures are diluted because we move halfway across the world. Our families, we don't have three generations on the farm anymore. The kids are in California while the old farm is here. Um, so we not only don't have those levels of care in the home anymore, but also how people feel and what they do to respond to illness and to loss and to those things um, becomes diluted. And so when we see somebody and we think we know what their culture is, this is, a, this is a Boston Irish person who's 42 years old. It's not the same for all people of Irish descent in Boston at 42, but there may be some generalizations from where we can start. So Dr. Kleinman's questions were things such as, what do you call your problem? Uh, what name does it have for you? What do you think caused your problem? How many people have we heard of were doing um, very serious illnesses who think that they, they must not have lived a good life. And they're not talking about the fact that they smoked cigarettes, but I was not as nice as if I could have been. My spiritual belief tells me that this I'm being punished. It's important to know that, because uh, in pain management, uh, I remember working with a nurse years ago, that's right, and she said people deserve to have pain if they want it. She wasn't saying being punitive. She was, she was talking about her own religious belief, and for her, she related that to Jesus and said that, saw that there was value in human suffering, value in pain for her. She did not inflict that on her patients. But it gave me insight into how some of our patients might feel about pain. Um, what do you think, uh, why do you think your problem started when it did? What does your sickness do to you? How does that sickness work within you? How severe is your sickness? How long do you expect to have it? What do you fear most about your illness? Maybe something completely opposite of what we think. What are the biggest problems your illness causes for you? And what kind of treatment do you think is going to be most helpful? Do you think that hot soup is going to help you get through this? Um, you know, or do you think that, that some medicine is the thing to do? So for spiritual screening, because I said, I said there's the biophysiological, there's the emotional, 
now spiritual. So these questions were developed called the hope questions. This is asking someone what their sources of hope are, that's the H. Uh, meaning, what is their sense of meaning and connected? By the way, spirituality for us, we talk about spirituality as being, how does one find meaning in the experiences of their life, and where does one have a sense of connectedness? Um, and that may be in a faith perspective. For many of the people we serve, it's a walk in the woods, it's spending time with their family, it's gardening or hunting. Do they have an organizational religion? Do they have personal practices? Do they use crystals? Do they meditate? Do they pray? Do they dance? Do, you know, what are their personal practices? That's important because how can we duplicate that if they're stuck in the hospital? How can we do something in their room that helps facilitate their particular spiritual practice? And what are the effects of your particular spirituality on medical care and end-of-life um, issues? The P scale was asking, it's the 1 to 10 scale that you, you use often for physical pain. Are you at peace? This is going to be different for everybody, just like the pain scale. A 3 for one person is a 7 for another. It just lets us know if there are 3 today and a 5 the next day, why is that? Or 3 today and a 0 the next day, why is that? It's individual. Um, and so what they talk about with this is that for many people, a sense of faith and sense of purpose are important with whether they feel at peace or not. Um, this was uh, uh, developed by Dr. Pukowski, um, and this you see doctors, my doctors do, carry it around in their pocket on a laminated um, card and nurse practitioners. Um, what, is, what are their faith and beliefs? What, how important is their faith or belief system in their lives? How does it influence their decision? Do they have faith community? And how does their faith address their medical issue? What action would they like to be taken to address that? And we look at uh, bereavement. Uh, I look at bereavement, but I think in your work, if you're not doing bereavement work, but you're just looking at families, look at their lost history. What have they lost in the past? I met with a family yesterday in Pancreatic Clinic, a, a man and his wife, and the gentleman. Um, I noticed that when I asked them about their children, and they talked about four, two sons who lived down south, one son who was in the service, another son who lived nearby, a daughter who lived nearby, and then they lost a son a couple years ago. But the energy changed in the room, and I said, do you mind if I ask you, was your son's death sudden or anticipated? And he said, um, he said, well, I, you could say it was sudden. And I said, do you mind if I ask you, was it by his own hand? And he said, some people think it was, but I'm not really sure. And so I just thought, you know, it's important to know because if suicide has occurred in a family, no matter how devastated everyone in that family is by the suicide, it becomes an option. People are more likely to commit suicide if someone in their family has committed suicide than in a family that, that has not occurred, no matter how awful that was for them. It, I just think it's just become an option. What are the other life crises that they're having? You know, you get cancer while you also are, um, you know, while you're also losing your job, or you get, you get um, some difficult thing while you're also in the midst of a divorce. You know, things happen all at the same time. Does the patient have unrealistic expectations? That certainly impacts their coping with illness or their bereavement later, is if they, they have magical thinking. Are they socially isolated? They don't have somebody to talk to and be with and, and sort of... One of the questions that people ask, we have a bereavement program in which we have volunteers who actually call people at home after a death 
to see how they're doing. And one of the things that um, we check on is social isolation. So many people have said to us, is this normal? Whatever they're feeling, they are so glad when someone says this is normal. That's what your friends do for you. So, and often with the people that we work with, they've been ill for so long that they've left behind their social community, right? And they have been at home a lot. And are they unaccepting of supports? You know, we are Yankees, aren't we? And um, I can do it, I'm fine. Fine. And um, so if somebody doesn't accept supports, that's kind of a red flag for us. We look at if somebody has dependents and there were two working people in a house and one dies, um, that financial impact and having dependents can be really important. What's the, what coping mechanisms have they used in the past? And I say to patients, what or families, what coping mechanisms do you generally use when life hands you difficult things? They'll tell me, and then I'll say, which of those worked for you? And which of those didn't help? Because they're sort of going to repeat the patterns unless we can differentiate. What are the spiritual factors? And anger and guilt are big ones. I, I remember when I worked up at Gifford, walking uh, downtown one day, down into the village from the hospital, and coming across a young man whose mom had died, and he had a rifle in his hand, and he was headed up to the hospital to uh, go get that doctor. And so um, we, we talked a bit, but I think what was going on, with, and, he, and he ended up going home. Um, but he was angry, and I think he was angry because he was, felt guilty, because um, it seemed as though her sons and her husband had battered her over the years. And so he may have been experiencing guilt from having inflicted that on his mother. Um, we looked again at the financial impact, what the mental health history of anybody, again, their life stage, again, the cultural factors, and are they able to engage in any kind of discussion or work, engage their own feelings, but be able to express feelings. Um, we we want to know if whenever somebody dies in this hospital, I fill out a referral for our volunteers and myself, and I ask, was the death expected at this time? Because with ovarian cancer, you can die in a car accident. and so. Did the family think that they had three more months? This will, this will tell us about this. Who was present at the time of death? Was the nurse in the room? Was the husband in the room? Was the patient alone? What was the bereaved person's immediate response? Did they throw themselves across the body and wail? Did they crawl in bed with the person? Were they absolutely without any visible emotions? And how did they perceive that the dying person experienced it? That's very important because they can think that they could have done something better. Was it an acceptable thing? If you work in the ICU at all, you know that there are sometimes people who want to get the patient home, and we think they may not be able to make the ambulance ride. Can we bring that bereaved person to some sense of peace that the person did have to die here? Or are they left with, I, I didn't get them home if we'd only done it a day earlier? Um, if the death was by a suicide, what's the social stigma about that, and what's the guilt of people thinking that they might have done something differently to prevent it? Um, if they see it as preventable and it's said as the stigma. So if somebody has a low bereavement risk, and I think of this in terms of function, um, so they have social supports, they can express their feelings, there's some acceptance, they might be angry, they, they are sad, they have difficulty concentrating, these are all functional ways of coping with it. Um, if they have what seems like um, bigger anger, if they suddenly have a lot of physical complaints or they're ill, then we're a little more concerned about how they're coping. Certainly a sense of absolute hopelessness. And we've had it here where someone will say, when he dies, I cannot imagine being here without him. I cannot, I cannot see my life without him here. 
and how do we help that person before that happens? Certainly if someone's turning toward alcohol, somebody said to me the other day, thank God for alcohol. And so we had to start, you know, we had to deal with that um, in anticipation not only of his wife's death, but just how difficult their relationship was before she ever got ill. Um, if they are in absolute despair or have really intense anger, you know, where risk management is not allowing them into the hospital anymore because they want to go after us. Um, and the very critical is if somebody's suicidal or homicidal and, and if they have a plan. So how are we resilient about this? So are we hardy? Do we have this existential courage that we organize in our minds in a way that gets us, gets us through this? Do we have a sense of commitment? So doing this work, you are committed to it. It is, it is what you do. It is who you are. That actually helps us get through these times if that's what it is. Um, you know, sometimes we saw as, as nurses' pay finally went up and other people started to come into nursing, did you notice that sometimes your colleagues didn't come in because they wanted to take care of people, but because they liked the science of it? And they started to do that. You, you have, you know, I would say that those who come in to really take care of people and to know that they've helped while they've been here, that they may have, they may have one coping ability that may even be better than that person uh, for whom it's, it's more about science. Um, do you have a sense of control? And I have to tell you that when we look at where people get burnout and compassion fatigue, we look to their leadership. Studies have shown that many of us share the same personality characteristics. It's what is our leadership doing to help us feel useful, that we have a voice, that uh, our work matters. Um, this was very interesting when I began to study this and learned about that. It isn't just about who we are, because we are very much the same. Our professions bring in those of us who are very much the same. So that autonomy is, do you have that autonomy, that control of your own life, but what control do you have over your professional life as well? And do you perceive challenge as an exciting opportunity? I hate that statement, nobody likes change, because I think it's not true. There are, there, you might not like some change, but other changes you might be really excited about. And I think when somebody says nobody likes change, right there, they're kind of turning you off. They're telling you what you should feel almost without realizing it. I think it's how we frame it. Do we think that this change is exciting? Do we think it'll serve those that we are so committed to serve? And do we think change is normal? I mean, look at your families. Change is normal. It just keeps coming along. Do we have a sense of coherence with each other? Do we feel integrated with our personal life and our professional life? Or are we here 19 hours a day and we go home and collapse? I remember seeing a doctor in the cancer center and I said when I was orienting here eight years ago and I said to one of the people who was orienting me at that time, I said, that is the most tired looking person I have ever seen in my life. And they said to me, there are no other oncologists in that person's specialty right now. That per I can say she, she's the only one and she's here all the time. And I thought, oh my gosh. There is no integration of personal and professional there. Um, and um, do you have a stress-resisting resource, which we'll talk about? Um, can you comprehend what's going on? That's hard to comprehend sometimes when you see these little kids, isn't it? You know, or somebody, uh, remember, you know, when we had a patient who he and his wife had been together since they were 18, they married along the way, he was only 35, 
three months after they learned that she was pregnant with their first, their only now child, he learned that he had a life-limiting diagnosis. How do I comprehend that? I will tell you that I went to a Schwartz rounds one day, a pediatric Schwartz rounds, where they talked about the child eventually, who was three months old when she came to us broken, when she went and had a two-year-old two toddler sister, they ended up going back home after going to foster care for a bit, and the mom went into, into uh, an educational program to help be a better parent, got everything right, the social worker said, okay, she's ready, the child went home, and I think within one or two months was back here again. Um, it was the boyfriend who clearly is doing it, but it was the child, and that social worker who cried, they, this was a Schwartz round, so the nurse talked about it, she talked about that social worker from the state calling her every day to say, how is the child, how, the social worker would cry, she just, it's getting me right now, just feels so guilty, like how, how could we have thought it was okay? She couldn't comprehend how this could happen. She couldn't comprehend that somebody could break a child, but she did that work. She then had to comprehend how did we think it was okay and it wasn't again. Um, how, do we make a, how do we make that rational and understandable and feel like there's some order? How do parents whose, whose six-year-old dies, how do they make that rational? These are the people we work with. Um, what meaning do they make? Some people make meaning out of starting a foundation or doing a run. Uh, the Prouty came from the meaning of someone's young husband dying. Um, and that's how why that's all done. Um, that can motivate us to find meaning in something to, to meet these challenges. But then in terms of your own self-care, individual measures, think about what brought you to this work. When I do a day-long workshop with this with people, I'm not talking as an auctioneer, we're able to really investigate these things. One of the things that I do is I have you sit one with another and talk about what actually brought you to this. My, my mom was a nurse, I'm very proud of it. She had wanted uh, to be a nurse since she was six years old, and she became a, a nurse after high school. And I, her, her cap is in my office, and um, she would say to people, one of my four girls went into, went into it with me. And she'd point to me and I'd say, I'm, I'm, I'm a social worker, I don't, <laughs> I, don't, I don't do all that, but um, you know, what made you do this? What made you know or feel that this is where you could help? For social workers, what did we do or know that made us want to help? And when we have that motivation, do we find that that motivation is met here? Is it recognized and supported by our leaders? Is it recognized and supported by our colleagues? Is, do we feel that we've made a difference that day with our patients and the families we work with? Um, so it does feed our ego, but that's not a bad thing. It's altruistic, it's giving. Um, do you def differentiate home from work? Really, I mean, do you? Do you do it? Uh, one of my colleagues that I used to work with at hospice and now work with here, I said, Debbie, how do, you, how do you stay in such great shape and do all that? Well, in the middle of her day for her lunch and her staff, she makes sure her staff takes lunch. She's a nurse. She makes sure that her staff takes lunch. And what she and some of them do is they go down to the exercise room and they use that. But she recognizes the need for self-care for her staff and insists on it. Those nurses won't do it for themselves. So you, we have to insist on that. And that makes you better at what you do, and it makes you better at home, too. And, um, 
There are special substance abuse programs for doctors and nurses. The only other people in those programs are doctors and nurses. And there's a reason they're there, because sometimes people can't hold it all, and they turn to something that makes them feel better quicker. Um, can you listen and accept and not blame? And I, I know if this was a nurse sitting here, she would say, sometimes nurses eat their young. We're not supposed to say that, but um, that's a phrase I've heard in nursing. And I think what that is, is when you are an oppressed group, when you are victimized by blame of others, you become a blamer. And I think the culture of nursing, thank goodness, has been more honored by colleagues in the last uh, many years, more seen as, a, as a, a colleague with the doctors instead of a handmaiden. These things all help us take care of ourselves if we feel respected by that. Um, and it helps us when things go wrong, uh, or what someone thinks is wrong, can we truly listen and be tolerant and be supportive and not blame ourselves and others? Can we assess the stress? Where is it coming from? Is it really that that patient is a pain in the neck? Or is it really that I've got a child who's 10 too, and so I'm relating way too much to that? Or I've got a brother who's an alcoholic, and I'm relating to that, and not in a way that's helpful to myself or to this patient. Um, so we talked about those as individual measures, but as teams. Do we as a team share a common objective when we come into work in the morning? Um, are, we, are the personnel around us suited to the work? Did other people, that's what I said, uh, some people cult, sort of culturally in our professions, who's coming into the patient now, uh, to do the profession now versus who might have come in old school? You know, um, And do we feel suited to what the work is now? You know, the nurses I worked with years ago when I came into um, healthcare, um, they loved giving, a, they were old school nurses, and they loved giving a bed bath to a patient because they said, that's where I find out everything about the patient, what they're feeling, what they're thinking, what it's like at home. That's intimate and important time. Now, a nurse's aide is doing that, and so the nurse is, is a little further from the bedside in that way. How many patients are you taking care of in a day? What kind of support are you getting around you that even allows you to do that? Um, when people leave, is it because they think that they're not able to fulfill what they do in their present role and they need to move over in our system or outside of our system to do something else? And can we continuously find constructive, not destructive, constructive ways to confront new situations? When you come with a, with a challenge that you presented, do you come with some potential solutions? Again, leadership is involved in that because it's a leadership that invites potential solutions. Do you have a chance to brainstorm rather than somebody thinking you, you have to come fully prepared with the right answer? Do our colleagues have enough of a thing where let's just toss out some ideas, it's okay, the sky's the limit, say anything. These are the environments in which people get invigorated, in which people embrace change, and in which people stay at their job because they, they love what's coming next or they love the challenge of making what's coming next do what they are committed to do for their patients and their colleagues. Um, you, um, of course, good nutrition. We were chatting a little earlier. I said, do you feed these nurses mm -hmm. at, this, uh, at this meeting? And um, well, you know, that had to come out of the budget. But Judy and um, Deb, sat here before you got here trying to figure out a way to give you good nutrition when you come in this room. Now, that was good leadership. 
sitting there and saying, how can we make this happen? Could we, could we use granola bars? I mean, what would help them with better nutrition and with feeling appreciated and with not having to fall asleep during the talk because it's your only stop to get some lunch in you, your blood sugar's out of whack. Are you moving? Well, during the day, we know you're running from the pod to the bed, from the office. I mean, I, I think I've been up to the fifth floor, out to the infusion suite, and back to my office. Oh my gosh, I think I've been to each place at least twice this morning. And so that's movement, but is a good movement. One of the social workers I work with, when he has to go from the cancer center to the inpatient bed, he told me one day, he said, I've still got to go down the same hallway. I go outside. I said, Bob, what a great idea. I mean, it's not causing anybody any time. It's not taking extra steps. But what he's getting by walking from one door to the other door outside is very good. Journaling, my former office mate who's a chaplain um, who's retired now, Linda used to journal all the time and it was really helpful and she would teach writing to people and she would say, just let it flow, don't edit. And I do that with patients, don't edit. Whatever it is, if you need to burn it afterward, we'll think of a ritual to burn it that will also help. But just, just write, 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 write. Um, you can do creative writing, it doesn't have to be a story about you, it can just be about something else. Meditation is a really good practice. Um, and you know, I've tried to do it and I struggle with it because I can't shut my mind down. And what they've said to me is, then whatever uh, thoughts are coming in, allow them to flow through. The very fact that you took five minutes. Now I'm on a team where we talk about all these things and we value all these things, right? A couple years ago, Linda and I tried to put a sign on our door that says, meditation for five minutes. Do you know how many bad looks we got? <laughs> So our very own team that, that promotes this with patients, not five minutes in a day was it culturally acceptable to stop and be quiet? You know we've made a change with that on our team because we brought that to our team and said, let's look at us, you know, and do that. Now, do we do it? No, don't do it anymore. But um, <laughs> it was a really good idea, and if you can do that. Um, we tell patients, I tell patients all the time, there are walking paths around this hospital. Um, a very smart nurse that I work with, um, who I used to work with in hospice and now works with us here, Trish goes for a walk every day. At some point, it might be 3.30 in the afternoon, and she's going home in an hour, but she gets out for that walk every day. Um, music might be a way to do that. Art. Um, I help um, at the medical school um, the, for the on-doctoring course for first-year medical students. They actually will have a day when they go and listen to music and go and see art and do some other things and talk about the relationship of that and being a good doctor. So think about that. And love. Are you loving others? Are you loving yourself? Um, do you travel? Do you, are you doing breathing exercises? Do you garden? Do you take a nap when you need to do it? Do you have any quiet time? And I don't mean when you're charting. Um, is there any sense of adventure that you do? Um, do you ever get to get, it's hard to get together. You spend so many times together at work, but do you ever just do a movie night? Maybe with colleagues, people who get it, what you do. Um, and just be present for people and thank you. I thank you for your interest in the subject matter, for the incredible time at work, 
with your patients, the time that nobody sees, the time that went into your education, that goes into your current education, every journal article you read, every conference you ever attend, everything that you notice that you learned from a patient that day or learned from a colleague, every day the way you serve others. When you are so exasperated and your colleague says, Jane, can you come here? And you just say, sure, what do you need? When you want to say, no, you know, and so I hope you do have good challenges. I hope that you find great success and fulfillment and happiness in your work. And I appreciate being here today with you. Thank you. Mm -hmm.